I had the privilege in seminary to have a professor, and his name was Wayne Detzler, and he came up and taught a winterum or a J-term there in January at Southeastern Seminary. I suppose it's probably around 1990, uh, probably six or something like that. Long time ago now, I think. So, but Wayne had the privilege of being on uh, Billy Graham's evangelistic team. And it was a wonderful thing to hear him discuss aspects behind the scenes of what it took uh, to have a Billy Graham crusade, no matter if it was a city or a country. And one thing that stuck in my mind uh, that I've never forgotten was how much Dr. Detzler talked about how the city was bathed in prayer and the singers and, of course, Dr. Graham's sermon. But one thing he brought out was the fact that they knew they were in a warfare wherever they went. They knew that there was a gospel antithesis. Hope you know what that means. That there's light, and it's the light of life in Jesus Christ, and there's the darkness in this world promoted primarily by our enemy, Satan. So there's a real gospel antithesis going on in the world. And Dr. Detzler talked about warfare and how, you know, prayer is our wartime walkie-talkie and how that they had to engage the Lord of the harvest to thrust forth laborers. And it was just a glorious thing to listen. And you, there's no wonder that thousands upon thousands trusted Jesus as Lord in concert with the prayers of the people of God. John 1, 4 through 5 says, In Him was life, and Jesus was the life, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hath not overcome it. That's John's gospel, John 1, 4 through 5. Jesus, a little later, will say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That is John chapter 5, verse 12. So God has put this little missionary band on the move. That's just like our God, right? We're in Acts 13, and God puts this missionary band on the move. And what we see immediately is that this little band of missionaries demonstrates for us That the gospel stands in stark antithesis to this present world and to the world that they were sent into. It also demonstrates that the gospel is actually an unstoppable force against this present darkness and deception that's in this world. We learn that we have a commissioned people. But I want to remind you that although we commission people and we license people and we send out missionaries... We don't have power within ourselves. Zechariah reminds us it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We know that it's the Lord Almighty that performs the work. And so although the church commissioned in concert with the Holy Spirit, they were in absolute full dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ to do the work. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So... They're under the Spirit's control. They're directed out. And as this group traveled on their first missionary journey, they were literally shaking the powers of darkness by shining the gospel of the light of Jesus Christ into it. 
Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Who do men say that I am? They give answers. Who do you, Peter, singularly say that I am? And he gives that awesome confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say? Well, flesh and blood cannot give that to you, only the Father. And then he says, and I will build, come on folks, you read your Bible lately? My church. And what else? Amen. He read his Bible, right? Now, gates are for defense. So it is the power of the gospel that storms the gates of hell that cannot stand against the light of the gospel. So we see it happening here. Let's read our text, chapter 13. Uh, Let's get a running start. I know we went through verse 5 last week, but to help you get the context, beginning in verse 4 of Acts 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, that's just another name for Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Think we're going to have opposition in this world when it comes to the gospel? That antithesis? But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Again, they're making their journey. Uh, They arrive at Cyprus. Uh, Historians tell us that on a clear day, even now, if you stood in Syria, which would be present, which would have been today, present-day Seleucia, and you, you look out over the Mediterranean, on a clear day, 130 miles away, you can see the island of Cyprus. Just get this in your mind. What, what a picturesque scene as Paul and Barnabas are boarding that ship in that port, and they're pushing off the Antioch shores, and they're heading out to Cyprus on the very first time that you're going to cross international waters to get the gospel somewhere. That's an awesome picture to think about them fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, they're going to go to the synagogue first. And remember, if you're going to fish, you might as well fish in a fertile fishing hole. Amen? That's what I always say. I like to have fish in an aquarium where they're just hemmed in. I could just catch them. Well, that's why I like to farm pond fish, right? Yeah, you stock them, I catch them. So... Why does he go to the synagogue? Because pragmatically, it's the best place to be. You've got converging. We talked about that last week. We don't want to go over it over and over again. But ethnic-wise, culture-wise, 
You had proselytes, you had God-fearers, you had Jews in this synagogue. So Paul later will say in Romans 1, you know, he's going to write that throughout his missionary journeys. He hadn't written it up to this point, but he's going to say that the gospel, that, the, that uh, it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the Jew first. That began, that becomes his missionary strategy to take the gospel into those communities to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, they begin to labor and they begin to share the gospel. They go kind of east to west in Paphos and it's 90 miles wide. So, they're sharing the gospel throughout that. And you can see this on the missionary journey maps. Most of you will have this in the back of your Bible. So they make their way, and they go to the most important city. Isn't that kind of like the Apostle Paul, for God to direct him to this kind of city? So they're, on, they're at Paphos, which is the seat of the government of the island, and they make their way to this important city. And as, as they're doing, they're preaching the word and spreading it, and they encounter, a, according to the text, a magician. Now, how did they find a magician? Well, I have no doubt that once Paul and Barnabas and John Mark began to preach the word, it caused a stir and a gathering for people to want to hear the truth of the gospel. That's what happens when the gospel is shared. So, there's no question this Jewish magician would have been attracted to the gatherings as the word of God was being preached. It's highly possible that... He felt like he had the corner of all spirituality in the cabinet for Sergius Paulus. So if there's someone else giving some kind of spiritual advice, he'd want to tune in and find out what it's about. Now, when you see the word magician, don't think about David Copperfield. Don't think about pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That's not the best way to see this. The best way to see this is that he is a sorcerer. He is an occult practitioner. Our contemporary word would be a psychic, right? So Luke adds that he is a certain false prophet. Now, I don't think that that means it's in the sense of the fact that he was pretending to be a true prophet. I think it's more in the sense of that he was a false medium and he was seeking to, to mislead people. False prophet doesn't necessarily mean that he's claiming to be a prophet and he's not. Anybody that leads you away from the truth is a false prophet. So I think that's really the nuts and bolts of what's going on here. The name false prophet is broader at times than we think. So he's misleading the people. He's leading the people away from the truth. And here's the, the big thing. The guy's Jewish. So what does that mean to you? Well, it means that he has, to be a, he has to be a Jewish apostate. It'd be one thing if he was from the island of Cyprus and he was a Gentile. But this fella knew Jewish origins. He knew uh, perhaps some of the teaching of the law. It's not like the guy sits in the temple and he hears the Torah, which is the instruction. And then the next day he goes out and practices his divination or whatever he's doing, I don't think that's the case. I think he's a renegade, apostate Jew. And he's practicing the very things that God said in the law, do not practice. Deuteronomy chapter 18, don't turn, just listen. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I hate to hurt you Baptist feelings, but this would include your horoscopes as well. Sorry, but it's true. Why? Because you're seeking guidance from someone other than the Lord of the guidance. The God of creation. And it's it's an abomination unto the Lord. So it was forbidden. And some of these guys were just big time scam artists. That's true. But it's more than that, folks. Because there are real demonic powers at work in occultic practices. If you seek out those practices, sorcerers, mediums, spiritists, channeling the dead, you're abandoning the true living God and you're looking for other channels to give you direction in life. And these are often demonic. Yet here's a man on an island of Cyprus who's a magician, a false prophet, a sorcerer, and top it all off, he's Jewish. His name, ironically, Bar-Jesus. Now, my hunch is that you've got to consider that Jesus was a very common name. Yeshua, Joshua, Jehovah saves, was a very common... There could have been five to 10,000 people running around with the name Jesus when Jesus of Nazareth was walking the face of the earth. So this Bar-Jesus, uh, Jesus was, again, a common Jewish name. In the Hellenized version, it's the name Joshua. So... Here you have this guy whose name means Jehovah saves. Now, ironically, uh, again, I, I don't really think he had a relationship in the sense. My hunch is this was very common and probably had no relationship in the context with Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, Not trying to be a false prophet in that manner, saying I'm the next Jesus. That's not what this guy is doing. The fact is, however, he's misleading the people. His name means Jehovah saves, and he's misleading the people away from the true reality of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who saves. Next we find out this guy's in a high position in government. You know, they end up there sometime, don't they? I think we'd be kind of surprised what kind of influence our political leaders have at times. It's one of those things we're better off not to know, right, of what's actually going on. Uh, Sergius Paulus, the Bible says, was a man of intelligence, which begs the question, if he's that intelligent, why does he have this dude giving him advice? But he does, and Sergius Paulus would have basically been the governor of the island of Cyprus. And Bar-Jesus was on his cabinet. How precious is he? He would serve as the proconsul's advisor. You'd probably be shocked, again, to consider Uh, Our own world, I feel like Ronald Reagan was the greatest president of the 20th century. But his wife, Nancy, had her astrologist that she loved to go to. Come on, Nancy. Don't do that. But she did. She consulted with occult practitioners for direction and scheduling in regard to her husband. Well, here we are in this pagan society And Sergius Paulus goes after the man with the most clout. He's got more hits on the internet than any other advisor. Right? His 1-800 number is tagged more than anybody else's. 
And he thinks, well, you know what? This guy can give me some great advice. To say, again, that Sergius Paulus was intelligent was to mean and to say that he was a quality man with great understanding. So Paul and Barnabas are making their way to Paphos. It causes a stir, and the governor hears about it. And these two Christ's witnesses are bringing forth the gospel. And God is working in the heart of Sergius Paulus to give a hunger for the word. And so he wants to hear the word. This is where the trouble begins. Verse 8, we have Elimus opposing the gospel. Here's the man's name. Uh, and his actual name means a wise one or an expert. Elimus That's what his name means. Can you imagine the scene unfolding in your mind as they're preaching along? I don't know if he's going to oppose Paul as he's actually preaching or not. It's not clear if that's the case. But he begins to oppose him. I, I like to think that he's doing it or right at the heels of, the, of, of posing the sermon. But the governor is pondering the message of the gospel and what he's heard these two men preaching or this missionary band preaching. Can you imagine Elimus coming to Sergius Paulus after he hears and says, what do you think about what you just heard? And perhaps he responds by saying, man, this Saul, he's caused me to think. I, you know, Something's happening in my life, and I'm wrestling with what he is saying. And all of a sudden, Bar-Jesus hears of this influence, and he thinks his gravy train is about to be gone. Because if he trusts Christ, he realizes automatically there's going to be another influence in this man's life, and I'm going to get ousted, and I'm off the gravy train, and I can't make any more money. So he begins to actively pursue the Apostle Paul, and oppose him. One commentator said it just like this. The trickster feared that he would lose control and he would find himself ousted from his job. Now, can, you, can anyone relate to the tactics of the enemy in this regard? Maybe when you first heard the gospel and you began to embrace certain truths of the gospel and you had questions and you began to talk to your friends about it and... Your friends were not on the same page as you were. And they were like, I don't know about this. And the more you sought to embrace the truth, the more they began to pull back on you. Why? Because they're at antithesis with this gospel. They don't want you to get this gospel. And you start to gravitate toward the truth of the Word of God. And friends that you hung out with feel threatened. Because you may not do the things you used to do. If you get under the persuasive work of the Holy Spirit of God, no matter what their understanding is or lack thereof, people begin to recoil when the gospel encroaches on their turf. Any of you had any testimonies like that? Mine were more, I was saved at a very early age, like 9 or 10. And so mine was more living out the gospel in the light of the gospel in middle school, high school, and people wanting to pull you off the straight and narrow. When my conversion took place, it wasn't that people were pulling me back from the truth within the church. But some of you were saved at, 10, uh, at 25, 30, 40, and you left an entourage of people who did not obey the gospel at all. And they didn't want you to either. Some of you have that testimony. But young people remember this. The more you gravitate to the light of Jesus Christ, His Word and the things of God, the people around you, young people, are you listening? Will want to put their hooks in you in order to pull you away from the gospel. Don't be naive and don't be stupid. 
Just go ahead and shoot straight with you, right? You say, why do you have that right? I'll show you in just a minute. I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Make sure that you're, you're, you're mindful of this. They pull you away from the things that are most important in life. And they're going to do that. So be careful who your friends are. As soon as this man begins to oppose the, uh, the gospel, Paul begins to oppose him. <laughs> this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible, by the way. In verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, don't misunderstand this. It's not like Jacob being called Israel. Paul, Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his Roman name. Okay? So don't get confused. It's not like, well, Paul just graduated here because of this confrontation. No, uh, up until this point, it is true that Saul was mentioned as Saul, and not first, but last every time. And now he's going to always be Paul up to this point. And he's always going to be mentioned first. Why? Because he's the pillar apostles, po- apostle to the Gentiles. But here Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. Now folks, this is pretty powerful, isn't it? It's pretty good what Paul is doing. So what does he do? He fixes his gaze on the magician. Fixes his gaze. And here's Paul's apologetic defense. He stares him down. Now, again, this is in public. Let's say Paul was preaching. uh, And the guy begins to oppose him. Or behind the scenes, he opposes Sergius Paulus. No matter what, he's in public at this particular point. Now, the early description of Paul. Has anybody ever read what this guy looked like? The early description of Paul was that he was short, bow-legged, had a hooked Jewish nose, a monobrow, a receding hairline, and beady eyes. Now, can you imagine this dude? I mean, he wasn't the best-looking guy. Filled with the unction of the Holy Spirit of God. And he's got that prophet's finger pointed right at your face. Opposing this guy face-to-face. In all likelihood, he wasn't a good-looking man. And he's interjecting. Uh, he's... he's Bringing the truth forward to this man who's interjecting error into truth. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't Paul so gentle here? Verse 10 says, come, let us reason together. Is that what it says, church family? Well, Elimus, you have your truth and we have our truth. Let's just all get along. And go alone, and everything's going to be fine. Now he points his finger at him and says, You are the son of the devil. You have, you are directly opposing the truth of the gospel. Right? That's what he says to him. You know, we, we're supposed to avoid saying you when we preach nowadays. Y'all do know that, right? But you don't want to ever say you. We want to just say we, or us, or Somebody out there somewhere may have some deceit in their heart. And if you're somewhere out there somewhere, some, somebody, and you've got deceit in your heart, then you might want to consider that. It's not the way Paul operated. Uh, that's not his method. He looks straight at him, stares him down, calls him the son of the devil. I wonder what those around were thinking as Paul did this. Even the boldest preachers don't usually preach like this, right? I'm not even going to do this. Uh, story has it that Albert Martin was preaching along. 
And you can hear it on tape, and he stops. And the next thing you hear as he stops is this. Young lady, what are you laughing at? For some of the young people or older people, I might say, why are you looking at your phone? Right? Amen? And some of you will say, well, I'm looking at the Scripture, preacher. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, Jim, Jim Metcalf's looking at his, right? But Albert Martin was preaching along, and he stops, and the next thing you hear is, young lady, what are you laughing at? And he says, I won't look in your direction so as not to embarrass you. <laughs> Can you imagine the congregation? If he looked this way, everybody's like, looking over here. They were like, who's, who's doing this laughing? And he just keeps on preaching. So Paul's style was looking at you. He, he evidently wanted everybody also to look at him as he was proclaiming the truth. But he, he says, you are absolutely filled with fraud and deceit. Paul begins, full of the Holy Spirit, he begins to with the Spirit's outlook, penetrate this man's heart and what his intentions are. Calling him the son of the devil is not too nice. I mean, folks, this is strong. Probably the strongest scathing denunciation of a person's character found anywhere in the Bible. He indicts his character. You are no son of Jehovah saves. You are the son of the devil. Diabolos, double-tongued liar, is how he translates it. You bear the characteristics of the devil. Have you ever read that in John 8? The characteristics of the enemy, the liar. So he penetrated his motives. He indicted his character. And then he also condemns his conduct. Strips the man of any claim of true religion whatsoever. You're a villain. He says that regarding the things of God. Again, we'll be hard-pressed anywhere in the Bible to find a more scathing uh, denunciation. And then he says, You will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Who was it that came to prepare the way for the Lord and make it straight? John the Baptist. It's almost like Paul is saying, you're an anti-John the Baptist, and you're trying to pervert the way of the Messiah. The Messiah's kingdom is coming to rest in Sergius Paulus' heart, and you're making that way perverse. You're not going to stop it anyway, but you're standing against the truth. And so, you're putting obstacles in the way to prevent the Messiah, from accomplishing his purposes. What was Paul's apologetic defense of the gospel? Straight to the juggler vein. Right? Not only did he grab it, he twisted it. His apologetic was to be non, was to be unapologetic. That's what he's doing in this particular case. Not everyone deserves an answer, folks. Not every obstacle deserves our time and energy to be deconstructed down to satisfy a non-believer with your description. Sometimes you just need to say, you are an enemy of God and you are an enemy of righteousness. And close the book and let the Holy Spirit of God work on the heart. Here, here's a fine example that there wasn't a sit-down meeting of bringing our hearts together. It was, a, it was a time when Paul had to defend the truth at all costs, and he spoke clearly and without reservation. We pray this expression, don't we? May the hand of the Lord be upon you. When we say that, we're usually referring to the blessing of the Lord being on us, right? Well, in this case, the hand of the Lord would be upon you. It was in judgment on Bar-Jesus. Alimus. Do you find the judgment kind of humorous? 
who had been judged the same way. That's right. Y'all remember that sermon on Paul? When Jesus comes to him, uh, blinding light, he gives him the Deuteronomic covenant curse. Why? And Paul would have known this. He was a master of the law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. When he goes blind on Damascus Road, he knows that it is a covenant curse from God. Those will walk around in midday in blindness if they rebel against God. And Paul was rebelling against the Lord of creation. And here we have Bar-Jesus. You know, you think, no, surely Paul didn't think, man, I had this, I'm about to give you this, right? But it's kind of humorous that this is what Paul dealt with. And now, for a time, Bar-Jesus is going to walk, away, walk around in total darkness. I, man, I, I sat in my office this week thinking, what if we were all just automatically blind? Man, that, people who are born that way or live, I don't know which is worse. To, have, to be able to see and then not to be able to see. But just think about this man, all of a sudden, absolutely blind. And here is a spiritual advisor, right, that's supposed to lead people the right way. And now he's having to be led by the hand because of error. It's kind of humorous, though, that Paul himself was blinded for three days. And I think we have to see some grace at work. If you want to read that Deuteronomic text, Deuteronomy 28, 28 through 29, talks about blindness. Deuteronomy 28, 28 through 29. So God brings about this covenant curse. Is there some grace in this text? Aren't you thankful that it says it was for a time? That it wasn't going to be darkness forever in his life? We may ask the question, did Bar-Jesus ever come to Christ? I don't know. The text never deals with it. But there's some mercy here because he, Paul is definitely saying or saying that you've got a time and perhaps he saw the darkness in his heart like Paul did after three days. Because the blindness physically was an indication of blindness Spiritually. And so he has this blindness. Can you imagine the scene? The scary scene of having to be led around. Covenant curse upon him. This is an example of judicial hardening, isn't it? He has to have someone lead him around. Here's what we do know. The gospel light triumphs. I love verse 12. Then the proconsul believed because of this awesome miracle they saw. Is that what it says? Y'all have a Bible? What's it say in verse 12? Say, I got you because you're not looking at it. Well, what saved him? The miracle? What does it say? I mean, we, we want to see a miracle, right? I mean, you, you want to think, well, he came to Christ because he saw that Jesus has way more power than bar Jesus. No, folks, that's not what saves. Faith cometh by hearing by the word of God. If anyone ever, you love, don't you love Jesus on the Emmaus Road? Man, they're not sure who this is. They don't know it's Jesus. And the Bible says, though, he began to teach them and their hearts began to burn with the Word of God. And it was the Word of God that saved those disciples on the Emmaus Road. That spoke to their hearts and reminded them who Jesus was. And so it is the Word of God that converts the soul. He's been listening to the Word preached. And then he sees the Word and Christ triumphed over darkness. And it's the word of Christ through the gospel that saved Sergius Paulus. If you want to see people change, folks, just stick to the word of God. 
Just open your mouth and speak the truth of the Word of God, and God will change people's hearts. History tells us that Sergius Paulus's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren became baptized believers in Jesus Christ. That means they trusted Christ and were baptized and became phenomenal leaders in the church of Cyprus. Isn't God good? Now, we don't have that written here in the Word, but that's the truth. That's what history tells us. All we know is that he believed, and reality is John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and has not overcome it. Here was a clash of light and darkness. This happens all the time, even in our world today. Maybe not as Maybe it's more covert today than overt, but the fact of the matter is it happens all the time. A couple of applications, we're done. Here's number one. Watch out for false prophets who oppose God's Word. Pretty clear? Watch out for false prophets who oppose God's Word. This text identifies them that are attempting to turn people away from the faith. They're enemies of righteousness. They want to make the straight paths of the Lord crooked. Uh, You know what? They may not claim to be a medium are spiritists, but they can still pervert the truth of God. They permeate things that we hear and the things that we see. I have to remind you, folks, I don't hate to do this, but I have to remind you that some of our major universities will hire magicians and apostate Jews and false prophets. And your kids will sit in there. Now, we've got, uh, obviously, some David Mitchells. And college professors that know Jesus as Lord. But we also have a plethora of college professors who don't know the Lord. And don't think for a moment they're not put in those places of power as a pawn of the enemy. So when you put, and when you send your kids out, just know. Just know what happens. They're going to be bombarded with everything other than the truth of Jesus Christ. They're there. Sometimes... We have to stop and think to ourselves, son, am I willing to send my kid to the University of Babylon? You ever read Daniel? That's where they went. Different culture, uh, different teaching, different drinks. Everything about it was different from the way they grew up. And all of a sudden, Katie barred the door. How are they going to respond? We can only pray that they respond like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can only pray that they respond the way they do. Let's be honest. They're, the enemy is consciously, strategically seeking to devour, steal, kill, and destroy. Don't think for a moment he's not. He is. And the TV guys, mm, how could I be as honest as I can here? There are some good fellows on there, right? There are some good preachers on TV. Wouldn't hurt my feelings if they took them all off the TV, period. And the good ones can be heard by their church, or you can get it on the radio. Wouldn't hurt my feelings whatsoever. If the entire preaching television ministry was taken off the air, collapse tomorrow, you know what I'd do? Write a new song. I would sing for joy. The garbage that some of those guys put out there is just frightening. To think about what's being said in concert to the Word of God. And here's the thing. It's so convincing and it's so persuasive as you listen to it. So, watch out for false prophets. They're out there. Watch who your friends are, young people. 
We are not just opposed by Islamic terrorists, but also by secularists in the media and professors in the universities. It's there, folks. I'm just telling you because I love you as your pastor. You're going to have to face that. Watch out for those who oppose the truth. Number two, be bold in speaking and stating the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is, an, is in antithesis to this world, folks. Go ahead and be ready for it. But you've got to be bold in stating it and speaking the gospel. There's a clash of worldviews going on. There's a stark contrast and antithesis between light and darkness. John will say a little later, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what fellowship does Jesus have with the devil? And the answer to that is none. Right? And our world says, what? Let's just get along. You know what the devil does? He tries, his, he tries his best to diminish the lines of the antithesis. He wants to diminish the lines of the antithesis. And make it a little blurred so that we don't see the truth of God. That's why James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That's strong teaching. This is a war that we're in. We can't hold hands with darkness and light at the same time. Can't serve God and mammon. You've got to serve God only. In our gospel, there's an antithesis between light and darkness. And it's elevated and it's displayed as we speak it out and as we give the word of God. So... I want to remind you that there are terrifying consequences for those who reject the gospel. I tell you this because I love you folks. Hell is real. Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And you know, Great Awakening, the spiritual reformation was swarming in the 1700s. And it was circling communities. And there was one particular community that kept it at arm's length. They didn't want, that, they didn't want the preaching of the word. Uh, they didn't want to hear Edwards and others. But finally, they gave in and invited Edwards to come and preach. And he preached that, song, preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He wasn't angry preaching it. As a matter of fact, he was real subdued, kind of. And history tells us that he kept his eyes on a bell tower cord that held the bell in the back. And he just talked to the people. And the Bible, history says that Halfway through the sermon, people were just crying out and moaning over their sin and their lives because he was preaching on the reality of separation from God forever in a place called hell. They had to stop the service and attendants had to go and lead people to Christ. And he preached that sermon, folks, on, on the wrath of God poured out on mankind. See, humanity has the thought that, hey, when I die, it's going to be over. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They have in their mind the, the thought of annihilationism. I just won't exist anymore. That's not true, folks. The worst thing about spiritual death is it never stops. Everybody in this room is going to be in heaven or hell one day. There's no option number three. Either you're saved or lost. And the Bible says, I sound like Billy Graham, didn't I? The Bible says, how many times did Billy hold that up? The Bible says that if you reject Jesus as Lord, you will spend eternity in hell. That's not my opinion. The Bible says that. It is my opinion, but it's because of the Bible that I say that. So just know, folks, that to reject Jesus as Lord is to spend eternity in hell. I don't tell you that joyfully saying, 
You know, if you don't trust Christ, just everybody's going to hell in the handbasket and good for them. Oh, folks, there's nothing good about reading the description of hell. There's nothing good about a soul being in torment for the rest of their life because they rejected God's means and only means of salvation. I pray you won't do that. There's a stark uh, antithesis between light and darkness, and we need to be bold to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul held this enormous sword in his hand. It was the truth and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to the final point. Trust wholeheartedly in the triumphant power of the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe the gospel is the power, unto God, power of God unto salvation? Then, folks, the gospel is going to triumph. John Stott says, The Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel triumphed over the occult. That's what happened in this text. Our God can overthrow the obstacles. He can open up the heart of any man or woman. Maybe you're dealing with someone right now in your family or an associate, and they're in darkness. You know their mind is dark, and you feel frustrated. You've set out the best apologetic you can ever give, and it's been clear on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation, and you've demonstrated it by living your life for Christ. And still this person is hard-hearted. They're in darkness. They have, you have no sense that they're going to come to the light and understand the gospel. I want to remind you that light can overcome the darkness. We're always at God's mercy for salvation anyway, right? Salvation's of the Lord. Keep it up. Keep preaching and teaching the word and keep living the life. Keep it up. Keep speaking the truth. Keep walking in the light. And as you're in the light and you're demonstrating the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the darkness is passing away. It is. I understand. Some of you are saying, preacher, you don't know where I am. Oh, yes, I do. Because I'm looking at 580 people this morning, some odd, somewhere in that number. And I know for sure that some of you are thinking, I wish this dude would shut up. As a matter of fact, he's gone nine minutes over. You know what I want to do to you sometime if I knew who you were? I want to give you the Pauline gaze. Right? Now, we know how that feels. Honestly, you know, I got over that a long time ago. Because I know my master... The gospel will triumph over darkness. I am fully aware of that. So I don't lose any sleep over that. But I kind of understand what you're thinking. That if you're dealing with people who are obstinate and don't want to hear. And they're, they're in darkness. I'm convinced. From my radiator to my tailpipe. That the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's all said and done. Will triumph every single time. I have full confidence in the ability of my Savior to triumph. And He will. Right? It'd be awesome if He'd do that in someone's heart today, wouldn't it? He can. Let's pray. God, I thank You that when Elimus opposed the truth, Paul spoke straight. Didn't mince any words. It was the most loving thing he could have ever done for Bar-Jesus. To point out his error. That the Holy Spirit would put him in darkness. We don't know what happened. But here's what we do know, Lord. We've got people in this building in darkness. There's a good chance with this many people gathered. That they're sitting in spiritual blindness. And God, it moves our hearts. To pray for them. 
Lord, we know what it's like to have the gospel light and the life of Jesus turned on in our hearts and minds. God, because of it, we've never been the same. Lord, the gospel, I wholeheartedly believe that the gospel will triumph. Lord, would you do that today in someone's heart? And Father, for believers, God, give us the the wherewithal, the courageousness, the boldness to speak the gospel and to state the gospel clearly. And let you do the work. We don't need to dance around the subject. We don't need to be worried about the ramifications. Lord, you've called us to be witnesses. Yes, we're going to love them. We're going to try our best to to be, uh, Father, just like Paul's going to do in Acts. There's a time when we look at the culture and we set our argument based upon the culture and move them to the gospel. But there's also times when we just need to point blank say, you are the son of the devil. There's no righteousness in you whatsoever and you're perverting the truth of God. Father, I pray that you would work in the life of our church. God, we're, we are in, Lord, top of mind, one mission. We know that. And Father, help us know that there's darkness in that mission out there. God, but we have the light of the gospel. Father, would you help us to see that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.